Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working to change the cancer paradigm through personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Howard Hoxter, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about research myths in mainstream media with Dr. Perry Wilson. Dr. Wilson is an assistant professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Myths. Uh, what, what, what's a myth? <laughs> so what I uh, like to talk about a lot is how the popular media portrays medical research. So I'm a medical researcher myself. I think medical research is this amazing thing and a, a high expression of the scientific method. That sounds like a myth to me. <laughs> <laughs> In some cases, it is. Um, how the media conveys scientific research is filled with a lot of myths. And I'm not talking about myths like People only use 10% of their brain. I mean, those those things are out there. Um, what I uh, what I mean is uh, how scientific research gets done, um, and how the popular press tends to sensationalize the research uh, that's out there. Could you give me an example? There are there are so many examples. <laughs> one. Let's start with one. There there are so many examples. Um, so you know we'll see we'll see a, a study for instance. Um, I have one that I liked where. Uh, it was a large study in China, about 600,000 people involved. And what they found was that people who said they ate chili powder more often lived slightly longer. Okay. Um, and this was all over. This was in uh, the New York Times and on ABC News. And basically, you know, spicy food's the key to longevity is how that gets promoted. I'll go with that. Yeah, it would be nice. I, I like spicy food myself. When you dug into the actual study, you'd, you'd find a number of things. Number one, you'd find that in China, it turns out that spicy food is distributed very regionally, and particular rural people were more likely to eat more spicy food, which right. was not fully accounted for. The other thing you'd find out is that the effect size that they were talking about, the amount that it would increase your life, was incredibly small. So small, in fact, that you would have to take roughly 6,000 people and put them on a spicy food diet to save one life over 100 years. So just an incredibly uh, you know, of of passing interest to those of us who are who enjoy spicy food, but not really relevant. But not changing the world, right? And I think the most disappointing part of that study was that the effect was only seen in people who don't drink alcohol. Now I don't know if you're like me, but but if I'm having something spicy, you know, a little bit of beer on the side really helps. So um, I'm not going to weigh in on that one. Way <laughs> it's uh, so we see that very often. You sort of take the headline from the study without uh, diving a little deeper, and particularly uh, studies that show very modest effects. It's rarely mentioned that those effects are so modest. Yeah. So so who has responsibility for this, right? I mean, the media is trying to sell their newspaper or their website, right? That's what they do for advertising, yeah. whatever that, you know, they sure. need that. And they, they, so they need to put stuff out there that is of interest to people. And mm -hmm. people seem to be interested in ways of improving their health. Yeah. So 
I mean, do you think the media has a responsibility for doing the kind of deep dive? I mean, you know, there's people like Dr. Sanjay Gupta and stuff who I think are try to be pretty responsible, Absolutely. right? Yeah, yeah. No, there there are some there are some great science journalists out there, um, and and to some extent, uh, the answer is is yes. You know, we journalism is journalism, and Obviously, people want to generate clicks and website visits and things like that. But we would, you know, never expect our political journalists to not sort of dig a little bit deeper when a scandal breaks. We I don't would, know about that. It <laughs> sounds like fake news. We would we would ask more of them. Um, and I think the the good science journalists out there really do that. Um, there aren't many of them. Not that there aren't many good science journalists, meant, but there aren't many science journalists. Period. Um, because unfortunately, especially in print media, uh, we've seen less and less profits. They've cut back on staff. So dedicated science journalists are a rare thing. But to some extent, you need those people because they're the ones who actually understand how to read a study and mm-hmm. aren't just going off the press release. Right. And what about scientific literacy among the lay community who's reading this? Do you think that, um, you know, you just talked a lot you know, rather simply, which I appreciate, but talked about a big sample size and a small effect size. And, you know, and I certainly uh, get what that means. And I mm-hmm. think most of many of our listeners do, too. Sure. But do you think that the that the lay public can get beyond the, the headline, even if the Sanjay Guptas in the world try to explain this? Do we have uh, enough scientific literacy to to have this be part of our conversation? I, I have a lot of faith in the in the in the public um, that are I'm not trying to put anyone down. No, of course not. No, and, and that are reading these studies. Um, I think with a couple of sort of simple tricks, uh, we can vastly increase the scientific literacy. Um, so one thing I tell my patients, and and I'm sure like you, I have patients that come in after having looked on Google or you know sure. uh, about a disease or a treatment. They come in all the time. A couple of simple rules of thumb I tell my patients. Uh, number one is that no single study is enough. And much of the science news, the medical news that comes out is about a single study. That's just the nature of the news cycle. Something gets published and we're going to talk about it. Um, Those single studies we shouldn't go off of. Please read the article. Be interested. Kind of keep it in the back of your head. Oh, chili powder. I'm going to keep an eye out for that. Talk to your doctor about it. Talk to your doctor about it. Absolutely. But one study is never enough. The second thing is this concept that I like to get into people's heads, which is how many people do you need to treat with this drug to benefit one person? That has a technical name. It's called the number needed to treat. But if a patient just asks that question to their doctor, you know, how many people need to be treated with this drug to benefit one person? They will be very surprised <laughs> by the answer um, more, often, more often than not. Do you think most doctors can answer that question? Uh, most doctors should have the ability to answer that question with a, a quick internet search of the relevant studies. Okay. <laughs> that is, you know, and if, if they don't, they should, they should learn. I think it's a critical part of medical education is to know how to read the medical literature. And we're seeing more and more of that in medical schools, and I'm encouraged by that. Um, but, uh, But if patients look, they can even go to certain websites. There's a great website called thennt.com, the number needed to treat, thennt.com. N-N-T, okay. Yeah. And that site just lists medical studies and tells you how many people need to be treated with this drug to benefit one person. And you'll see numbers that will shock you. You'll see numbers like 200, 1,000, 5,000. And when you realize that uh, you know a, a drug might, you have to give a drug to 100 people to prevent one person from dying, you ask a whole new interesting series of questions. Now, it doesn't mean the drug doesn't work or that the drug's not good. In fact, if the drug is relatively 
harmless or has very little side effects and isn't crazy expensive, then that might be a totally reasonable proposition to treat 100 people to save one life. But you can imagine situations, obviously, where that's not reasonable. And that that's a key to really having an informed discussion with your doctor about mm. taking a medication. Yeah, but you know, from let me just push back a little bit, but yeah. from my perspective, uh, what patients are interested in is not so much how many patients look, uh, are needed to be treated to see a statistical effect, but what are my chances of benefiting from this thing, me? Yeah. Right? That It's all about me, which yeah. is appropriate, right? Well, so how do you invert that? Uh, it, it, very simply, <laughs> if, if 100 patients need to be treated for one to see an effect, the chance that it will benefit you is 1%. And again... We might say, oh, that's crazy. But if this is a if it's a once a day kind of vitamin or something, then you might and it's preventing death, well, then yeah, maybe I'll take you know, I'll 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 take that one percent chance that I'm the one in a hundred people. But what it'll also do is force you to have a conversation with your doctor about your individual risk. Right. Right. Because those studies prevent present the data from a whole population, the average. On average, it benefits people, you know, 1% of the time. But you might be significantly higher, particularly if your risk of that outcome is much higher. If your risk of death is much higher, well, maybe that vitamin is, mu is much more effective in you. You know, it's really interesting. Last night, I happened to be out uh, for dinner with a couple of friends, one's a lawyer and one's an engineer. They're both you know, very intelligent people. And we were at a sort of a health food oriented kind of place that happened to have like an emporium upstairs. And the emporium, I, I was just amazed at the number of supplements. I mean, I'm, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but I mean, that there were just rows and rows of supplements. And I brought this up at dinner and uh, one of my friends uh, was saying, well, he really, you know, wants to start taking B vitamins. Uh, B complex. I said, oh, oh, why? And he started listing these things that he thought B complex vitamins did. And I just commented to him and said, well, you know, you you seem to eat a pretty healthy diet. I, I'm sure yeah. you're not deficient in any B vitamins. Um, and we had a reasonable conversation about it, but I, sure. I could tell that he wasn't interested <laughs> in, in hearing that, right? He wanted mm -hmm. to believe that B vitamins were going to do whatever it was he wanted. And I, and I, I find that true with a lot of very Absolutely. educated people. Mm -hmm. There's this belief system, and I'm not putting anybody down about yeah. it, uh, about untested supplements in particular. Mm -hmm. What's your experience or thoughts about that? Uh, absolutely. and, and uh, Turmeric powder. Oh, uh, yeah. Milk yeah, well, thistle. <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a kidney doctor. We just had a... a Coenzyme very... Q. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a lot of this. We just had a negative study for turmeric powder. Um, so... so People fall into Google holes all the time, um, and uh, the technical term for this is confirmation bias, where you Google, you know, B vitamin health benefits, right. and you what, find some. You, you're going to find an awful lot, and so you can get this. You can get in this really self-reinforcing area. It, you're correct. It is really hard to disabuse people of some of these notions. Um, the best thing to do is often just to suggest other methods of search. Hey, have you checked out? You know. This website, and I, if you're interested, I can give you some very authoritative websites that look at things like this. But have you checked out this? You know, they have some great information. Let people discover the alternative information themselves rather than, you know, sort of beating them over Preachy. the head with it. Now, there's some cases where, you know, most a lot of doctors will say, eh, you know, he wants to take a B vitamin. It's sure. not going to hurt. You know, totally. I'm a nephrologist. I'm a kidney doctor. We say vitamins give you expensive pee. You know, they just kind of get peed out. It's fine. I tried that one too. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, you know, what's the harm? And there probably is a little harm to your pocketbook, but that's okay. Um, 
in some cases, though, people are forgoing, you, you know, what we'd call more conventional therapy. And, and you, you know, you can think of some high-profile cases like Steve Jobs where – He didn't get treated for his pancreas cancer. I, I, exactly. And in those situations, I think as, as medical professionals, you actually do have a bit more of a role to ensure sure. that if they are taking the vitamins, that's fine. But let's not forget to take – your other medication as well. Yeah, well, you know, I have to say that I was a little humbled uh, a year or two ago when a patient of mine who may or may not have had a particular kind of low-grade leukemia that I treat, uh, you know, declined the, my recommendation or he tried it one day and and he had a real big list of these things, including milk thistle and all this other stuff. I can't tell you what milk sure. thistle is. And for whatever reason, his counts got better. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, maybe he really had a you know, a transient viral thing or whatever, but he's a believer and yep. I, I I can't disabuse him <laughs> sure. because, well, you know, he's better. Yep. Yep. Um, true and unrelated or true? I don't know. It, it, right? it can be very it can be very hard to tell. Fortunately, we do have an apparatus to test these things. We have things called randomized trials where we can evaluate um, whether drugs work and whether supplements work. Um, they The supplement companies are not terribly interested in doing this uh, because I don't think they stand to gain very much. Uh, by doing a trial. It either turns out to be negative and there's some evidence against them and and they're already getting people to buy them. So unfortunately, we don't see as much of that as we should. Right. And it's not easy to get such fun, uh, studies funded all the time either if you're an academic wanting to do them. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Grant funding is an issue. I, I wish the- It's expensive uh, to do these trials. It can be, it can be incredibly expensive. Um, you, the average uh, clinical trial um, of a new therapeutic, uh, well, this is if you're trying to get FDA approval. I think the most recent estimate was fifty million dollars. That, wow. that that money does more than I have. Yeah, a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Despite our you know our, our Yale salaries, right? But um, uh, never nevertheless, uh, there there are uh, there are ways to do these studies. You know, especially supplements don't need FDA approval that are much cheaper. Well, Perry, well, uh, this is a really fascinating uh, topic, um, and we're going to want to continue about this. But right now, we need to take a short break for a medical minute and for me to take all my supplements. Please stay tuned to learn more information on media myths. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 1,500 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut this year. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Perry Wilson from the Yale School of Medicine, and we are talking about myths about medicine and supplements and other health issues in the media and how people respond to them. Um, Perry, one thing that um, I'm not sure how it fits into the myth thing, but one one of the 
frequent complaints uh, you hear from colleagues, friends, and patients is the frequently changing recommendations, dietary recommendations often based on this new clinical study versus that old clinical study. So coffee causes pancreatic cancer, coffee prevents pancreatic cancer, (laughs) something's good for your blood pressure, something's bad for your blood pressure, you should take this for your cholesterol, no, you should do this diet instead. And there's a lot of exhaustion around that. And of course, people are scurrying around, but you know, what do you think about that? This is uh, this is a major issue for 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 patients, um, especially when the media is reporting kind of breathlessly about the newest study. And coffee always seems to just get a lot of attention. I think because it's such a delicious and good thing. You don't that, think Starbucks that, is paying for that? That we all love. I, I haven't seen Starbucks directly financing any of this research. Um, dietary research has is is. You know, I, I don't mean to be overly critical here, but is its own circle of hell in my in my opinion. Um, so, much of dietary research relies on something called the food frequency questionnaire. And basically, what you do is you give a patient this hundred questions: that says, how often do you eat meat? How often do you eat smoked meat? How often do you eat soft cheeses? How often do you eat hard cheeses? And on and on and on. This is a huge amount of data for each patient. And now you can take all that and put it in a computer, and you can dice that any way you want. You can look at each individual question, you know, soft cheese as it relates to lung cancer, or you can say, well, soft cheese has lactose, so let's combine all the things that have lactose in it and relate that to lung cancer, or you can say, well, total calories, and you can cut this data in a million different ways. That's very dangerous because the more times you can test a hypothesis, the more likely you are to get it wrong, which is why I think we see all these back and forth about dietary research. You know, coffee, you know, people say the coffee effect and there's a, a lot of research when I, I like to point out, you know, some people have their coffee black. Some people have, you know, a double tall mocha frappuccino with extra sugar and I That's not coffee. I highly doubt that those have the same effects. In addition, you know, coffee just black coffee has hundreds of different chemicals in it, right? So we have no idea what's going on there. The coffee effect may as easily be the biscotti effect because we're just picking up patterns of behavior. The oatmeal effect, maybe. <laughs> the oatmeal effect, right? There's, or 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 the working effect, right? So so people who uh, work more or have more intense jobs may drink more coffee. And there. they may have more stress. They may have more stress as well. So there's a lot of these things playing, and and unfortunately, these observational studies just never capture all of that. So I'm very I, I hesitate a lot when any when any new diet fad comes out and promotes long lasting health benefits. Um, to the the credit of some of the societies out there that make recommendations, they tend to slow walk these things a little bit. The the it took a long time for the American Heart Association to sort of evaluate how much salt is appropriate in the diet. And, and they're, they're still evaluating, but they don't change with every single study. Uh, the news media would like us to believe that, that, oh, now eggs are good for you. Now eggs are bad for you. Oh, yeah, that was a big one. Eggs, <laughs> eggs and cholesterol, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, there are some broad trends that I think are very true. So I think the, the, the shift uh, away from you know, fat as a danger and more towards simple carbohydrates as a danger seems to be supported by more and more evidence. But again, we have to be very careful. We have to be slow. We need a lot of studies saying the same thing. Any given study you see, even, you know, in the venerable New York Times, you got to take with a grain of salt, but not, more, sugar. Than, not more than 2,500 milligrams a day. I know. <laughs> well, no, I, I had this in my life, just uh, an internist that I uh, used in uh, Baltimore, when I lived there, who's a great guy, had me taking fish oil Mm -hmm. uh, because there was heart disease in my family and stuff. And I had a a little bit of a 
not a cholesterol problem, but a subtype of cholesterol problem. And then the fish oil data kind of yep. turned out to be not as convincing, mm-hmm. to say the least. And, yeah. and I threw away a big bottle of fish oil capsules, which is fine because it's kind of yuck anyway. But. Right. Well, we also have to explain to patients that science is supposed to change. We're, we're supposed to kind of keep testing things and reevaluating things. And so I would be very worried if we'd be treating the same condition with the same medicine for 100 years. That's that's sort of a bad sign. We're not making progress there. So we we don't I, I don't think patients should sort of distrust the medical profession when we say, you know what, we got some new data and we thought this drug worked, but the better data suggests it doesn't. Um, there's some there's some really dramatic examples of that. Um, uh, there was a drug uh, called called flecainide, which was used to suppress abnormal heart rhythms. And 20 years ago or so, it was known that after people have a heart attack, these abnormal heart rhythms, precede death. And the thought was, ah, you know, they're going to have this abnormal rhythm and then they die. This drug suppressed those abnormal rhythms and it did it beautifully. (laughs) It worked very well. So for some period of time, we were treating patients with this. Then the longer term studies showed that the use of that drug was associated with a threefold higher risk of death. Wow. Um, And so we don't use it anymore. Now, this was not the medical profession being bought out by big pharma. This is how research works. You have initial studies that look at an important outcome like the rate of abnormal heart rhythms. And then you have longer term, more comprehensive studies that look at a really important outcome like death. And we should expect things to change. I gave you a notable example where it really went wrong. And well, that's, then there, there that's was, not there the was norm. Vioxx, right? Well, that's, an, that's another great example um, where more information came out. Now, Vioxx, in contrast, uh, you know, does seem to, to uh, some of that information that we should have had initially may not have come out when it should have. And that's, that is a major problem, obviously. Well, let's talk about that. So yeah. people may not remember, but Vioxx was a, an arthritis drug or an anti-inflammatory. Is that right? That's, that's correct, yeah. Uh-huh. And, um, and it was supposed to be safer or better than things like Advil? Yeah, maybe less risk risk of gastrointestinal bleeding, which was a rare complication of some of those other drugs. Yeah. All right. So can you remind us what the problem was? Well, the, the, the data shows, sure enough, it was very effective in terms of pain control and people had uh, a lot of benefit in terms of their arthritis symptoms. But the longer term data showed that it increased the risk of heart attacks and other blood clotting problems. Mm. And had that long term data come out with long-term follow-up, you know, careful surveillance as we do of a lot of drugs, that would be one thing. But the uh, the the lawsuits allege and that uh, that the 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 maker of Vioxx, which is uh, Merck. Merck, I believe. Um, uh, was actually aware of some of those complications beforehand. Now, I'm not a lawyer, and I, I, you know, so I don't want to get into that too much. But that is, you know, that we would call a failure of the system. Um, but the existence of, of occasional failures like that does not necessarily, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't discount the whole process. Because by and large, medical research is methodical, slow, and accurate. <laughs> Reporting on medical research is not. So why do you think people uh, in the public, uh, you know, there's so many people who kind of believe that, that the, the cure to cancer is known and somehow physicians don't want to tell people that they're not willing to test the special berries or yeah. whatever. Why, why is there this mistrust? I, I, I think some of the mistrust is is rooted in, in history. Um, you know, there are some notable ethical failures in the history of medical research. You think of the uh, Tuskegee experiments where, you know, de- 
deliberately infecting people with syphilis or not treating them with syphilis, things like that that did happen in the Terrible, past. Terrible, yes. Um, there are a variety of, uh, of, of ethical and legal obligations we have now conducting human research that we don't have then, which is very important. So there is that kind of backdrop. Um, uh, the other thing is that people really want there to be a cure for cancer. Uh, cancer is scary. Um, and we all know someone who's had cancer. And most of us probably know someone who's died of cancer. And just knowing that it's out there is 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 frightening. And it's very reassuring to think that there's a cure. Um, what I tell people when they when they tell me, oh, you guys know what the cure to cancer is, is especially as a struggling assistant professor here uh, at Yale, you know, if, if I had the cure to cancer. Why would I withhold that? <laughs> they could not pay me enough to, you know, shout it from the rooftops and be the most famous, you know, physician scientist in the history of mankind. It's just you, that that type of conspiracy um, is is a little too difficult uh, for, for me to swallow. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, yesterday I was offering a clinical trial to a patient where I really thought it was, you know, probably her best option at this time. And I, of course, discussed other options. And she had a cousin with her, uh, you know, nice person. And uh, and I, I'm very careful about going through the consent form mm-hmm. with the patient when I have time to do so, because I think our consent forms tend to be very difficult for most people to read, even though they're supposed to be at a lay level. They're, they're yep. very hard. And I and for there's long. so much mm-hmm. information there from the lawyers that I like to just kind of look at paragraph four. Yeah. You can take the whole thing home and read it, but this is what this that's is how I do it. Anyway. Yeah, sure. So I went through that and you know, and of course it talks about, you know, one of the investigators has a conflict of interest that he discloses because he consults for the pharma yeah. company that makes it. And yeah. and the um, and the cousin said, although she wasn't discouraging the patient from going on, was like, well, you know, it's all about the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they should be paying you to be on this to be a guinea pig. And mm-hmm. it's uh I was very disturbed that that was her response, but I also kind of got it, you know. I get it. I get it. Uh, It's in the pharmaceutical industry is, you know, a multi-hundred billion dollar industry. Pharmaceutical companies are profitable. Um, uh, They charge a lot for their medications. They do have a vested interest um, in, in a positive result. In a positive result. The nice thing is that we have this governmental institution called the FDA, which is going to pour through their data and make sure that they didn't cook the books at all. Um, that that is the public's voice in this in this process. And to date, the FDA has been a, an incredible advocate for public health and public safety. In fact, to the point where some people complain that they're not approving sure. drugs fast enough. Um, so you know, the, fortunately, uh, we have uh, we have a watchdog group there, and I think that's very important that um, that we explain that to patients. Do you think that physicians who participate in these studies have some complicit complicity? I'm not sure what the word is. Uh, you know, kind of look the other way or allow statements to be made. How often do you think that happens? That are, they're not. Do you have any sense? Uh, allow statements to be made about a drug that. Turn out not to be true, or that well, or the the data maybe are interpreted. How complicit do you think the physicians are when there has been? Yeah, you know that that that's I interesting. because we are the authors of these of these articles, right? right? Even though the pharma yeah. company is sponsoring it. Yeah, in 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 some cases, um, oftentimes, yeah. oftentimes. Uh, yeah, personally, I, I I'll just say that my research funding comes from the NIH. So, but um, I I I think uh, that once a study is published. Uh, and a physician is out there discussing the results. Uh, yeah, I think there is a human tendency to to put the best light on that because 
none of us are going to sign up to do a clinical trial, to run a clinical trial that we don't believe in to some extent. Right. So there's there's we, an impetus to be right, right? To be right. look good, right? You, you know, if, if someone came to me and, and said, you know, I want to do a trial of slapping people in the head to see if it cures cancer and I'll give you all this money to do it, I would still say, no, you know, I don't think that's going to work. And so but it know, might work for kidney failure. Maybe, yeah. Well, for kidney failure, that'd be, yeah, that's a different story. Um, so, uh, so I think there is that. And, uh, and fortunately, uh, we do have these disclosure requirements so that physicians, when they speak, have to say if they are, if they have received funding from, from drug companies. Um, I often encourage patients, you know, if they're, one sort of my rules of thumb when they're Googling is if you're on a website that is advertising the thing they're talking about, that's not the best website for you. And that holds true whether it's a supplement or whether it's a pharmaceutical product. You know, the pharmaceutical website's going to have a lot of information and most of it's going to be factually accurate because they're legally bound to be factually accurate. But clearly, you know, it's there's a lot of pretty pictures and smiling faces in the background. Um, so you want some independent people to discuss the results of any trial. The elderly couple sitting in bathtubs at, on Big Sur looking at the, uh, it, it, the water. It, it, exactly, right? And then the list of side effects, you know, 500, uh, 500 things deep in small print next to them. I don't know. That, that whole bathtub scene looks pretty good to me. You it, know? It, well, I'd, I'd, I'd take it if I had any free time. <laughs> Fortunately, we keep you too busy. <laughs> right, right. Right. What about abject fraud? I mean, is there really ever fraud in research? Uh, it, it, that's, a, that's a great question. It, th- there undoubtedly is, because there are known cases of fraud. Um, the, the question how prevalent it is is, is is a different question. And some some surveys that have asked, you know, when you ask people directly, have you committed research fraud? Believe it or not, the answer is, is often no. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but when you ask research associates and, and study coordinators, do you believe that fraud has ever been conducted? Uh, the numbers are higher and numbers, you know, the yes response to that question, sometimes as high as 20 percent in some surveys. I don't think that's the rate of abject fraud. Um, it's hard to commit a fraud. So I'll, I'll give you a, a, my favorite example because um, this, this touches on the media. So in 2001, uh, there was a randomized controlled trial um, in Korea. And they took women who were undergoing in vitro fertilization trying to get pregnant, and they randomized them to usual care, which is just whatever happens in in vitro fertilization. And the other group was prayer. And it wasn't the women praying for themselves. They sent pictures of the women to prayer groups in the United States. Oh, right. Okay. And had the prayer groups in the United States kind of pray at these pictures. Uh, They didn't know the women's name. They couldn't contact them. The rate of successful pregnancy was about 30% in the control group, which is decent, actually, for in vitro fertilization. 60% in the prayer group, which is... Amazing. Amazing. You know, if there was a drug that did that, it would be a blockbuster. And, you know, prayer is cheap. Um, So... This got a headline in the New York Times, a study links prayer and pregnancy. The lead author or the senior author in the study was a guy named Rogerio Lobo, the then chief of OB-GYN at Columbia University, which is is my alma mater actually for med school. Um, But, uh, you know, there's something a little strange here. And and shortly after the study was published, it all fell apart. The interesting story is that the the study never happened. It was completely fabricated. The women in the in vitro fertilization clinic were never found, nor were the prayer groups in the United States. The guy who wrote the study was a guy named Daniel Worth, and he was later prosecuted on check fraud. Um, he uh, had been collecting his father's, uh, his deceased father's social security checks for about 10 years. He went 
by the alias, and this is the best alias I've ever heard, John Wayne True Love. Okay, this was a guy. He didn't have an MD. He 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 had a, a, a JD. So why he's writing this medical paper is unclear. And as you look back, you see all these red flags. This is a great example of how peer review can sometimes go wrong. So peer review, we think, is this beautiful thing where we have an independent arbiter say, is this study good or not? But if you're just going to lie, you know, I would look at that study and say, well, it's a randomized trial. That's that's the highest good quality enough. of evidence. That's good enough. So we do need to be skeptical, especially about claims that are particularly fantastic. Dr. Perry Wilson is an assistant professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.